Welcome to Novel Romantics, a podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and a teacher. Today we'll be discussing No One is Coming to Save Us by Stephanie Powell Watts. My guest today is Michael Coyle, professor of English at Colgate University. Michael Coyle is founding president of the Modernist Studies Association and has served as president of the International T.S. Eliot Society and on the boards of other author societies. His research is centered on modernist literature and on the contributions of African-American literature and of jazz to the modernist movement. He's been a jazz DJ for pretty much his entire life. Welcome, Michael. Well, I'm so glad to be here, Doug. Thanks for inviting me. It's my total pleasure to have you here. I have to say, not only has he been a jazz DJ for pretty much his entire life, his show on WRCU-FM uh, in Hamilton, New York, is like one of, it's also available online, is one of my, like the highlights of my week every Monday, uh, oh. listening to the Slim and Him show. <laughs> I'm also pleased that as an English professor, you've said centered on modernist literature in your biography, not centered around, which is like one of my biggest pet peeves of language. <laughs> Prepositions will be the death of the language. I'm always telling. I'm always telling my students, like, how can you center around something? The center is got to be. It's a center. It's got to be. Anyway, we're, we're here to discuss. No one is coming to save us by Stephanie Powell Watts. It's in fact the first of two episodes in which Michael and I are going to discuss recent novels that engage with and reinterpret F. Scott Fitzgerald's 1925 novel, The Great Gatsby. And um, this one, I think. They're both very different novels, the two novels we're going to discuss. Um, you'll have to, listeners, all wait for the next month's episode to find out what the second one is. But this is a really interesting reinterpretation of or playing with some of the ideas of Gatsby, I think. And it really transposes them to the contemporary uh, to contemporary America. And um, I wonder, what, 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 where do you want to start, Michael? Well, let's let's start with the obvious place. How does this novel of Watts relate to Gatsby, and how are questions of race picked up from Gatsby and brought into the 21st century by this book? How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds good to me. So maybe you could just um, talk a little bit about the really the first point of that, which is actually the second point you made, is what what are the questions of race in Gatsby to begin with? Because I think most people who read The, the Great Gatsby don't necessarily think of that as a novel that is really preoccupied with questions of race. Yeah, well, the, the problem is that race shows up a lot in Gatsby, and it, it feels to many readers just kind of random. Like, why is it there? Like, yeah. you remember the, the the moment when when Nick is being driven into the city by by Tom to visit Tom's mistress, and uh, they're passed by a a fancy limousine with a white chauffeur and uh, black passengers. And there's this kind of haughty rivalry the narrator tells us, Nick tells us. You know, why is that there? Uh, it's, a, it's a complex weave, to be sure. And it's also really important to remember that, you know, and, and, and I, I want to spend some time with this with you today, because one of Watts's most interesting innovations is what she does with the Nick character. So for our listeners... In The Great Gatsby, every single thing that we think we know about the story comes from Nick. He's the only voice we really hear. He reports everything. 
And it's clear by the end of the second page that he's not reliable. <laughs> he, he lies to us on the second page. And he, he says, you know, he doesn't judge people. And then he spends three pages judging people. Judging people, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, he's, he's a really complicated character. But in the, in the Great Gatsby, he doesn't really do anything. Yeah. So it, it seems to me that in Stephanie Powell Watts's No One Is Coming to Save Us, that role of, of narrator is picked up by Sylvia. Yeah. The character Sylvia, who's kind of like the, the mother at the center of, of this struggling family. But she's, she plays a, a, a big role in the story. She's not just an observer. And um, sometimes the narrative voice seems to escape her. Watts does some things with, you know, what, what we call free indirect discourse. You're the novelist. You should explain what that is. Yeah, well, <laughs> thanks. I, I was actually, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I was thinking while you were saying that, I'm not even entirely sure that I agree altogether that Sylvia is nick in this though I, I see the point of that in fact it's worth probably just and i'll come back to free and direct discourse presently but um it's probably worth at this point just saying a little bit about what this novel is actually about it's a about a uh family it's centered on centered on um not around a family in north carolina in a lumber town in north carolina they're um a relatively poor but not totally impoverished um, African-American family. And uh, someone, uh, a guy called JJ, um, has moved back to town up to the top of the hill over the town where he's building. He's had a road cut in and he's building a big house that overlooks the town. And this town, being a lumber town in North Carolina, has sort of fallen on hard times because jobs and manufacturing has been shipped out to various places. Um, China is mentioned in particular. And so it's about the kind of economic struggle of, I guess, lower middle class and lower class people in, in North Carolina. And it's very specific about its geographical references, in fact. So that's the kind of setup. Anyway, and Sylvia is the matriarch of this family. And she's got adult children, uh, one of whom is her daughter, who Ava, who is the kind of Daisy figure, I suppose. And and then JJ, obviously named, is the is the Jay Gatsby type figure. Anyway, back to free and direct discourse, which is basically a a technique where a third person narrator can kind of float in and out of the voices and thoughts of different characters in a novel. It's not quite the same as just like an omniscient narrator, that they stay quite close to the thoughts and perceptions and give a kind of honest account, or at least they give the characters thoughts their own representation on the page and what i i find most fascinating about this this narrative technique is is how destabilizing it is yeah right? the novels of the 19th century for the most part you know you as the reader knew where you stood and you knew what was right and what was wrong yeah but because there's so little signposting in free indirect discourse sometimes you're in the character's head and then suddenly you're not and you might be reading it for, you know, wait a minute. Like there's this, this moment of a defamiliarization, disorientation. Yeah. And I think it's particularly interesting when a character says something that, that they might actually believe, um, but it isn't necessarily true in that kind of yeah. omniscient world. Of that. It's, it, gets, it can be very exciting as a technique for writers, I think. Yeah. And so this is what's interesting to me about what you said about Nick 
the Nick figure being Sylvia. And I think there's a, a huge case to be made for that because she's in the house near the big house and she's sitting there. She doesn't really leave it very much and she's watching other things happen. And, you know, she gets invited up to the house at one point, you know. Um, so there is a kind of... seem to be the kind of moral center of the book too. But from a narrative, like a narration standpoint, my argument was going to be that and I, I think we can probably both have our cake and eat it on this without too much trouble. My, my argument was going to be that Stephanie Powell Watts kind of explodes that, that narrative responsibility because there's this, this first person plural voice that comes in now and again, this we yeah. that is observing everything and often commenting and very specifically on very specific moments about the history of the town and so on and so forth and, and it has this weird kind of it's it's a it's a kind of it, this what i'm going to say is wrong actually because it's kind of a disembodied voice except that when i was going back through the novel yesterday thinking about various things that we might talk about she does in fact embody it right at the beginning of the novel yeah and it serves almost like a chorus like a kind of like greek chorus at times to what's going on but she says that is the relief, the ache of one singular pain. It was not hard to believe that we, the black people in town, in dog trots and shotgun houses at the bottom of the mountain, houses stuck in the sides of hills scattered like chicken feed, weren't the ugly children. And it goes on from there. That's on the bottom of page three. So she's actually defined we, the black people in town in dog trots and shotgun houses at the bottom of the mountain. Yeah, I was I was thinking of that same passage, Doug. And then that that sort of choral voice, I love that you put it that way, comes back at the very end of the novel. Yeah. So as things are being summed up, the beginning of chapter 36, you know, she says, you know, we all laughed. And that isn't that that sort of plural voice of the the community voice isn't there all the time. No, it's it's there very intermittently. Yeah. Which is which is I think um, one of the strengths of the novel and of her like planning of the novel or her execution of, of her plans for the novel that she doesn't it'd be easy to overdo that yeah and she doesn't overdo that I think she could I mean from my point of view I wish she'd done a bit more of it because I liked it and I thought she could get away with it a bit more but it's, it's also I'm not the writer it's not my novel and it doesn't matter what I think but um, <laughs> but I really like how she uses it is my main point and I, I like it too and, and part of what I like about it is that when it shows up it stops you in our tracks like yeah. wait 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 where did the we come from yeah. so I, I'm really impressed by this this young writer I, I love what she does on the level of language and I, I love the formal innovations of the book and I, I think the way that, that she plays cat and mouse with, with Fitzgerald's you know, iconic novel is, is not just smart, but purposeful. Mm, for sure, yeah. So, you know, maybe for our listeners, we should say just a little bit more about how these parallels work out. You started to do it a minute ago. So if we think of Sylvia as a, a complex sort of Nick Carraway, who differs from, from Nick in that even though she makes mistakes, she's telling the truth as she knows it. Mm-hmm. Did you see the, um, the Boz Lerman uh, film of Gatsby about yeah. five years ago? And you know how he, um, he uh, sort of takes a page out of, out of Moby Dick and the, the movie begins with this invented frame narrative where Nick is in a sanatorium and his therapist says, why don't you try writing all this down? What happens here? is very different. I think Sylvia's 
talking through her own problems as the story develops. But so then we have, as you said, Ava is the, the Daisy character. She's married to a man who doesn't deserve her, isn't, isn't faithful to her, and has basically come to nothing. That's really different from Fitzgerald's novel, where Tom Buchanan is, is you know, quite wealthy, not necessarily money that he earned, but certainly money that he inherited. It's also interesting. It's, a, it's an also another interesting point where her use of free indirect discourse comes into really powerful play. Yeah. Because because although Henry is basically a loser, um, you get the he gets the benefit of his own version of events, and he gets to he gets to he gets his thoughts get some exposition on the page that allow him the kind of dignity of of his own nice. thoughts, which I which I think is one of the important things about how you how a good writer uses free indirect discourse and how she being a good writer uses it in this novel like she really those characters who it's easy to condescend to or to to kind of efface from the novel because they're not important or they're losers yeah. or whatever or they're, they're you know they're not the women who really sit at the center of this this is a, a in a number of ways a novel about women yeah that's really true too and but it allows them their space and it, it gives them an, an honesty of of their own presentation which i think is it matters like he he doesn't come off as like a wonderful guy or a great guy or any of those things but he does come off as sincere as, mm-hmm. as messed up as he is and as kind of lousy as he is he's not he's not he's not a jerk in that way you know he's, he's not a jerk and doug i really like the fact that that you use the word dignity mm. poor as these people are struggling as they all are all of them in a, in a certain way retain retain their dignity J.J. is an interesting character in this way, too, right? So he is, as you observed earlier, he's the sort of Gatsby figure. He sort of disappears from the town, defeated in, in love, and then he, he comes back quite prosperous. Not Jay Gatsby prosperous, right? No. But by the standards of this community, he's done very well for himself. But whereas we know that Jay Gatsby had become rich by, by running you know, bootleg hooch, by being a you know, hanging out with gangsters. JJ makes his money working through government contracts. Now, maybe yeah. that's another kind of gangsterism, but we don't have to do that now, do we? <laughs> the opinions expressed on... <laughs> so, uh, I, I like this, this reimagining of it. But then, you know, what's it all for? So, you remember the famous final sentence of of the great Gatsby, right? Mm-hmm. So we beat on boats against the current, borne ceaselessly into the past. Well, this novel too is obsessed with what our relation to the past is and what it should be, what we what we might hope it would be. And that part's really complicated, and maybe you can help me understand. Yeah, no, it. no. I, I, I was um, as you started saying that. I, as soon as you said "born ceaselessly into the past," I was like, I got to pick up the book and start looking where my I wrote down my notes about this because there's a whole like, there's almost like a refrain in this yes. novel that is like, like. So if if we if we touch on your um, interests and expertise in jazz here for a second it's like a a refrain that gets repeated with variations or a melody that gets repeated with variation all the way through i don't think she she ever she never says the same thing 
exactly the same twice, but she but she drives at different iterations of it about the way that these characters sit suspended between I, I think like like mentally, intellectually suspended between their their pasts, the futures that they want, the present that they're in, and how they're trying to make sense of those things. Um, so like just a quick example, and this gets really complicated in a way that I'm interested in sort of teasing out. And I'll try not to just give you a lecture on it, but, um, you know, I might anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm on, on pages 304 and 305. Um, so like on the top of page 304, Ava Baby Jay began, I don't feel right here. We've got to get out of memory lane sometime. So like he, here's here's Jay expressing the need to get out of the past they don't want to you know because he's but he's also come back to town specifically to be in memory lane because the ava is his lost love who he wants to drag back into his present out of memory lane so it's like there's a complicated little dynamic there right um and then on the next memory lane not lover's lane yeah 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 well i'm going to come to that explicitly (laughs) as well like that's where it gets complicated because there's a really what I think is kind of an interesting, again, series of variations about love that are also related to this, this ceaselessly born, the past ceaselessly born thing. But then, on the, so on the top of page 305, so like literally almost exactly a page later, he had known all along that it couldn't last and shouldn't last, but for a few days they had both pretended it would. So it's like this this idea that these things of the past we shouldn't be living in them, but but they're but they're still trying to make them last in the present. But they know it can't, and they know it shouldn't. The couldn't and shouldn't is is interesting to me as well. The, the, there's a kind of honesty in the in the denial, I suppose. There, like, yeah, yeah. So you've put your finger on on one of my favorite parts of the whole novel. Mm-hmm. And and you know this this working out of this this question of of time and desire. Good heavens, it's almost Proustian, right? <laughs> um, memory and desire, right? Memory wanting to pull us back, desire pushing us forward. So maybe uh, thirty five, forty pages after where you were reading, Ava affirms everything comes back if you wait long enough, and that would seem to to echo. The sort of fatalistic view that we get in Fitzgerald's *The Great Gatsby*. We all enter the story too late, and old people can tell us what they know about the past, at least some of it, at least the important stuff. Sylvia says. But here's the part that I really like. It's on 346. If you want to look at it with me, I do. So this is where we we, we sort of shake off that that sort of modernist fatalism. They say that life can give you another chance, but don't believe it. And you would, you, you know, you read to the end of that sentence, you think, oh, all right, so you only get one chance. No, that's not what the novel says. They say that life can give you another chance, but don't believe it. You choose to find another chance. And I really like that, mm-hmm. that part of it, especially in this moment where, at least in America, people are so obsessed with identity politics and so obsessed with these ideas that, you know, you're sort of determined by these these socio-cultural historical forces that are bigger than we are. And obviously, there's a lot of truth in that. But this novel affirms a very romantic vision, ultimately, I think, more romantic than Fitzgerald's, in that, you know, it's kind of Nietzschean, right? We can struggle. We can choose. This is the, the thread of the novel that, that I think most catches me. 
Yeah, for sure. There's, there's an interesting tied in idea with that, with this idea of like Sylvia thinking about what old people can tell you. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to start with, I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I've managed to avoid giving the lecture that I was perilously close to giving before you <laughs> stepped in. So Here it comes. I'm ready. Yeah. We're making a good double act so far. Uh, but, um, you, you start to see that dynamic and and, and I so I'm going to propose having not really quite thought this through that all of this is a a kind of expression or dramatization of exactly the idea that you've just been talking about that this idea that you choose to make another chance and what that means is quite complex it's, it's one of these things that like is simple to say or simple for the character to say quite hard to write well in that moment for the author of the novel and then also quite really hard and that's one of the achievements of this novel i think really hard to dramatize successfully and complexly and give it the due that it deserves and i think she's done that in this novel for the most part so like here's a couple iterations of the the complexity of what it means to try and choose to give yourself another chance so i'm going to start on page 242 where i don't think this is particularly given anything away but like ava she and jj want to start their life that they've always you know thought they might have could have should have had together and they're and they're trying to drag sylvia into it by like announcing it to her so she as the mother can kind of you know they, and they never say this but it's like oh they kind of want her blessing they kind of want they want legitimization for what they're doing because they you know she's cheating on her husband he's rolled back into town from doing you know he's never quite explicit about what he's been up to and it's important to note that I, I don't want to interrupt what you're going to say, but at this point, Sylvia doesn't know that Ava's husband has been unfaithful to her and had right. a child with another right. woman. Right. So she says, um, this is Sylvia talking to her daughter, Ava. She says, no, I'm serious. That man doesn't love you. You don't love him. Can I say it plainer? Sylvia fought the impulse to pull her own hair. He's another sad sack you can't help. Listen to me, Ava. The hardest thing you'll do is keep moving forward. Don't keep looking back. What did that get you the first time? You think there's nothing out there, but I guarantee you there's nothing in the rear view. So like all of that stuff is there. And it's it, here it's explicitly embodied in these in these this relationship that sits at the center of the novel and Sylvia pronouncing on it. But all the language that you were explaining a couple minutes ago is all in there as well this this idea of looking back looking forward making choices and then this is what's kind of interesting or more than kind kind of interesting this is what's actually really interesting to me it's not so 60 pages later on page 306 mm -hmm. ava and jj are talking and uh they're talking about this this uh, little weekend fling they had when they were college students and uh he says we loved each other. It was okay to do whatever we wanted. To which she replies, Ava stopped her mincing steps in the water. We were important to each other, Jay. Isn't that the same thing? He asks. And I, and then, and then there's a nice um, image of her looking out across the water. They're swimming in a, in a lake, her walking out over the water. But so she, the, the terms of love are being redefined there. And his understanding versus her understanding, which is informed by what Sylvia told her 60 pages earlier in the novel, a day or two earlier in the novel, is what I find interesting. That that So Sylvia, the thing that you quoted of Sylvia saying earlier, like, we old people can tell you this stuff. All we can do is tell you this stuff. And, it, and there's a kind of one way of 
of reading that, I suppose, is like, but you stupid kids won't listen. And I think, in fact, somewhere in the novel that more or less gets said in more or less those terms. But here it is that her lesson has actually hit home. One of the one of the I think strengths or one of the one of the things that shows you you're in the hands of a of a really good writer is that she doesn't call attention to that payoff of the earlier moment. She just pays it off and lets lets it be the fabric of the novel, nice. which I really really like a lot. Yeah, I don't know. It, maybe you should respond to that before I continue um, part three of my lecture. <laughs> no. I'm afraid your listeners are going to think that we, we somehow coordinated all this because you're coming down on all, all, all the same points that I wanted to talk about. There's another parallel here, Doug, that, mm-hmm. that, that really fascinates me. And if, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to remember a moment in The Great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. And then look at what happens on the page right before you just were reading. Oh, cool. Yeah, great. So, again, everything in Gatsby is is problematic because of Nick's narration. One of the places where those problematics are most unmistakable is when he's talking about things that there's no way he possibly could have known. So there's this famous moment in Gatsby where we get a vision of Gatsby and Daisy's first kiss. And I say we get a vision of because this is what Nick's imagining. Yeah, yeah, it's him fantasizing. And the way that this book gets taught in in American high schools is like, this is the great moment. This is Gatsby's cosmic dream. Well, look at what's actually said. (laughs) One autumn night, five years ago, they, that is Gatsby and Daisy, had been walking down the street when the leaves were falling. And they came to a place where there were no trees. Now, wait, are the leaves falling or are there no trees and no leaves? Never mind that now, but it's a contradiction. There were no trees, and the sidewalk was white with moonlight. They stopped here and turned toward each other. Now, it was a cool night with that mysterious excitement in it which comes at the two changes of the year. I thought there were four changes, but never mind that. The quiet lights in the houses were humming out in the darkness, and there was a stir and bustle among the stars. Out of the corner of his eye, Gatsby saw that the blocks of the sidewalk really formed a ladder and mounted to a secret place above the trees. He could climb to it if he climbed alone. And once there, he could suck on the pap of life, gulp down the incomparable milk of wonder. Now, what Nick imagines there is essentially infantile. Yeah. He's going to climb this ladder and then nurse like an infant on the, on the stars. It's, it's silly and it's got nothing to do with love. It's unless it's Nick's love for Gatsby. But I know we're really here to talk about Stephanie Paul Watts. So here on 305, right, right above where you were reading, after a few days together in the dorm room, Ava had told him that he couldn't stay. and He'd known all along that it couldn't last and shouldn't last. Isn't that where you were reading? Yeah. But for a few days, they pretended it would. He'd gotten them what food they needed. What So he's taking care of business, right? He's taking care of practical things. But I love the way that Stephanie Powell Watts sort of pulls it in. Like this is a, a crucial moment in Nick Carraway's vision of Jay Gatsby. What does it do in this novel? Well, what you were just saying, I, I think, it's it's much more realistic and it's a, it's a much more grown-up assessment of what, love really means, mm-hmm. what memory really means, and how these two things dynamically interrelate. 
Am I making sense? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a little excited about this. I think yeah, this no, <laughs> no, that yeah, you're absolutely yeah. I think you've nailed it. Yeah, it's a. I think the the important thing is that it's. So when you said it was more grown up, it's not. It's not just that it's more grown up. It's 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 also actually embodied and realized so whether yeah. so she says as as i've already quoted she says a page he, a page later in response to him saying we loved each other we it didn't matter and she's saying well we were important to each other yeah uh, which is kind of which is what matters and those are different things and so the, again it's like it's quite complicated that idea it's it's much more grown up to say we were important to each other and 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 acknowledge honestly that that's that wasn't really love like you it, it might have been infatuation from your side side of things but it wasn't love exactly it was you know importance and friendship and whatever but not how i'm going to define it whereas the, the nick's fantasy that you read out is utterly disembodied as mm-hmm. you pointed out it doesn't it even contradicts itself which is you know it's the kind of thing that critics like to go this author has these contradicted himself it's like rather than ever taking seriously that the author might have done that on purpose they just the like, might have known what she was doing yeah, yeah 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 they just sort of chalk it off like no this, this guy this woman doesn't know what they're doing like um <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that great modernist aesthetic principle of present yeah. don't tell yeah so, there is no moment in Gatsby, like the several moments we were talking about earlier in uh, No One Is Coming to Save Us, mm-hmm. where some voice sort of steps back from Nick and says, yeah, you know, there's something a little off with this guy. <laughs> hey, buddy. Figure it out based on what he does. Yeah. But so what, what Stephanie Powell, one of the things Stephanie Powell Watts does is her quote unquote Nick character is a fully grown woman who's loved and lost and lost again but still loves, mm. but it's not easy and it's not butterflies and flowers. It's, it's tough and life is hard. And she tells Ava a couple times, you've got to fight for your life. Like she literally says that, like mm-hmm. you've got to fight for your life. And uh, this conviction obviously is, is pertinent to the struggling African-American community but I also think, you know, philosophically, this is what it means to be human. Yeah, that's that's the thing for me as well. It really is like, it's a quite a profound statement on on what it means to be a a human being in a community uh, of other human beings. Yeah, which isn't to by any stretch of the imagination to to discount or 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 try and gloss over the the racial politics of this novel which are which sit right they're always there but that's also part of what's important in about a mature racial politics right is that you you're not always reducing it down to this identity that this simplistic identity but acknowledging the complexity of the identity that the in this case the author is trying to elaborate dramatize give value lend value to yeah. Or demonstrate the value of might be a better way of putting it. Well, I was just going to say, so this thread that we've been tracing ends neatly. I mean, this is a novel that spends a long time on its denouement, right? There's a, there's a long sort of wind down in this book. Mm-hmm. And one of the last things we see, like in the closing paragraph, there's J.J. looking out, out his window onto this deck, right? And the deck of, of J.J.'s fancy house is the equivalent of to uh, Gatsby's dock, mm-hmm. right? Because from his deck, JJ could look down onto Sylvia's house where he and Ava had had known each other in their youth. 
and we're told, simple sentence, the past was finally behind him. Whereas, you know, Fitzgerald says, yeah, you can never get away from it because it's constantly pulling you back. Fitzgerald's novel, at least, well, this is complicated because we, again, the only voice we get in the novel is Nick's. Mm -hmm. And Nick says, and so we beat on Boats Against the Current, Born Cecily into the Past. Here he says, nope, the past is finally behind us. <laughs> but it didn't come easily. No. It was a struggle. There's two things that are worth pointing out about the past is finally behind him. First is present tense is finally behind him. Oh, right, 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 right. Right, in a novel that's narrated in the past tense. And second is the the first sentence of the of the final chapter, which I'm tempted I'm tempted to to make you rediscover yourself, but I'll read it out. Jay had the dream again, so we're back into we're 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 landing right back in, in yeah. a in an interesting way to that your idea of the the Gatsby passage you read out about Nick's sort of fantasy of Gatsby's fantasy and who's fantasizing about whom and and so on and so forth, but she's couched this as a dream. But it, but not in the way that that passage is, not a fantasy. I think there's a clear distinction there. And this dream is like it's not an anxiety dream. It's not a nightmare. It's a it's a positive vision of a of a present tense, not a future, but a present tense, in which these characters can live and and understand themselves and each other, which is interesting. Yeah, you know, in their their one biggest attempt at, at wisdom. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards famously wrote, um, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. But in the same you know, final page of the novel, she says, well, I shouldn't say that. Sylvia says, presumably it's Sylvia since she's narrating. Yeah, let's not, let's not confuse our characters and our authors here, Michael. You're a literature yeah, professor for crying out loud. Bring me a C and send me back <laughs> yeah. to the, the back of the classroom. Sylvia says, if you can't get what you want, want something else. <laughs> want something else. Find what you can want. Yeah, she's a she's a real like um, a testament to this idea that you like you should adapt to what's available to you and find. I, I, this is this sounds more like kind of fatalistic than it actually is in the novel, or or even in that I mean it myself. Like like adapt to what is at hand and and make full get full life out of what is in front of you yeah um, and there's a lot of different you know we won't go into all of it in, in the time we have here but like there's lots of d different nuanced ways which you can hold that idea as you as you just read the novel thinking about sylvia and see that at play in her relationships with her husband with her friend uh, is he called james who gets mentioned at one point in the novel and there's this kind of discourse in him and her the relationship that she seeks with this we haven't even talked about it with marcus who's a a guy who um, phones her from prison and she's kind of his like telephone pal from prison yeah. and there's and like it's quite that's quite a fraught in some ways relationship or, or storyline that i find really interesting in the way it operates through the novel and i think is really from a just like a the way you plot a novel and here are the events in the novel and how they relate to each other that's a really interesting line for me that is is kind of lies outside the Gatsby aspect of, of what we're talking about, but adds a really fascinating dimension to her character and to the story as a whole about all the different people who are, who, who form this community. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And I'm also glad that you mentioned that um, 
what Stephanie Powell Watts does is not confined by Gatsby. You know, she she draws strength from this canonical novel, but she has her her own vision. Yeah, what she does, which which is I um, like the smartest thing you can do as a novelist, I think, is regardless of what you're, you know, you're always gonna have source material for a novel, whether it's so. Let's for the sake of simplification, in this case, say. Gatsby is the source material for this novel. That's not, that is true, but it's, that sells the novel short. And um, as long as I acknowledge that, I feel like I can move on. Um, or like if you're writing a biographical novel, then you have all this biographical material that is your source. Or if you're writing an autobiographical novel, then it's your own life is the kind of source of your material or so and so on and so forth. But the smartest thing you can do as a writer is is get what you need from that source and as soon as you can move as far away from it as you can or need to and really refocus your attention on the needs of the story that you actually want to tell which isn't the same story that the source material itself tells and she does that really great with Gatsby in this novel to come back to the point she's she has this clear structure of Gatsby from the characters and some of the storylines like you know you know there's got to be a confrontation between a, a, a jilted lover and the Gatsby character because that happens in Gatsby I won't spoil for readers or for listeners oh it's too late for that <laughs> how that plays that well how that plays out uh, is another yeah. story but but she moves away from that that starting point to a much richer novel than she could have written if she'd like been slavishly hammering away at the Gatsby story just for the sake of hammering away at the Gatsby story in kind of a you know anxiety of influence kind of way um, there, there doesn't seem to be a particular anxiety of influence, I guess, in her. She, she's there's a real freedom that she uses that foundation as a source for. Yeah, you know, at, at a certain point when I was reading this novel and anticipating this this really fun conversation with you, and you'll you'll forgive me, I hope, but I was thinking about T. S. Eliot's essay of 1919, Tradition and the Individual Talent. I, I try not to go more than about five minutes without mentioning that essay in my day-to-day -day <laughs> life, so um, you're on safe grounds. Well, good. <laughs> you know, so new artists, those writers who achieve the condition of art, in Eliot's view, achieve their individuality precisely by engaging tradition. It doesn't mean they're hidebound by it, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean they're limited by it. And it certainly doesn't mean you simply repeat it. So again, the parallels between No One Is Coming to Save Us and The Great Gatsby are fascinating, but they're dynamic. Yeah. They're subject to, well, precisely the kind of interpretation and conversation that we're having now. Um, there's, there's probably no one way to parse it. We haven't talked about the title, by the way. No, I was so I actually I, I almost wrote down a note a few minutes ago to myself to say, come loop back to the title. And I kind of like, can we pause that for just a moment? Oh, yeah, yeah. And because maybe talking about the title will be the interesting way to kind of sum up all the kind of different threads that we've been throwing around in this conversation. I want to I'm, I'm desperate to get to this one other thing that I think also fits really interestingly with all the stuff we've been talking about. Which is the this intergenerational thing again, mm. and the ways in which these ideas of the past and the present and the future and the and the what you learn from your elders, I suppose, is is a sort of shorthand for putting it. How you interpret that yourself as a younger person of a younger generation, but also the ways in which you use these things you learn to choose to choose that path or to to choose to move forward, and the difficulties that 
that that moving forward as sylvia says it's not easy but you have to find a way to do it there's an interesting sort of set of moments that again i think are are kind of an interesting setting up of an idea through one character and then paying it off through the ways in which other characters interact that happens and so this also comes back to this free indirect discourse thing. And I think it will also play towards the talking about the title. So I'm going to try and do everything for everyone all at once. (laughs) That's why this is such a professional podcast. Um, So this is, this is Johnny who we also haven't mentioned. And this is like one of the smallest in terms of role characters in the novel. And it also is another opportunity to talk about free indirect discourse so Johnny is the younger mistress of Don, who is Sylvia's kind of estranged, semi-estranged yeah. husband. And she's significantly younger than him. So this is something that I, I feel I, I'm I'm ambivalent about with this novel. It's like Stephanie Powell Watts has decided to to give to use her free indirect discourse for everybody. Almost everybody in this novel, um, even a character who only appears for a couple pages, gets a gets a direct thought. And like this says more about me than it does about her. But like for me, there was times where I wish she'd done less of it. It's a it's a minor sin to say the least. But like it was something that at times I was just like, oh, I wish you'd rein this back a bit. But on the other hand, having said that, here's where that strategy really pays off. So again, it's my problem, not hers. <laughs> uh, it really is like I, you know, you when you read and, and write and whatever, you, you start to develop these idiosyncratic ideas about things that really you have to kind of acknowledge are not really the like what I like what I was saying before about the you know the contradiction in in the Gatsby scene. It's like if a critic wants to pounce on that and start talking about, it, they're really just talking about themselves because the writer might have chosen to do that for their reasons. Almost always. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, to the point. This is Johnny reflecting on herself in relation to Don, her much older lover. He was still pretty to her, though he could easily be someone's grandfather. She had thought that the age difference didn't matter, but she'd been wrong. So already, it's, it's, this is very interesting to me, but it gets more interesting two times as we go on. She would always be superior to him. She would see a world because she would outlive him by decades that he would never see. Super fascinating, but it's not finished being fascinating. It's going to get fascinating her. That's a word. What she hadn't counted on was that she would always be a few steps behind him never knowledgeable enough about the good music a stranger to the lean and hungry times that sounded like an all-night party in the retelling the past that past life she had access to only through the tales from her mother girls far less beautiful than she was had much more johnny knew this she understood the unfairness of it all in every direction and it goes on from there but this is just a just a really interesting moment of this young woman reflecting and then the author, it's, it's an interesting use of free and direct discourse. It's all in Johnny's voice, but with that layer of the author using third person to kind of show this moment of insight that Johnny has about this moment between her kind of superior, younger, more naive, perhaps a little bit, this is uncharitable, but a little bit stupid herself. And then the moment of where she has an epiphany that there was something that she had been missing herself. Like Johnny is thinking this. She's the one who says she hadn't, what she hadn't counted on. She's realized she's always a few steps behind this guy that she's also going to outpace. 
And it's a really interesting moment. Of, again, this reflect this reflection between past, present, and so on. And then, it, so that's on page two, two, three in the novel. And only ten pages later, I, in my view, anyway, it pays off through different characters. So this is page two thirty two. And this is um, this is where Sylvia. I talked about this moment earlier, and, and I've we've we've quoted a few passages in and around here already. But this is Sylvia's come to Jay's house up in the up in the hill up 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 the mountain where Ava has spent the night, and they're kind of they're basically playing house, like they're acting like they're they're a couple who are just going to live domestically like this, and they're trying to, as I said earlier, trying to get Sylvia to sort of tacitly approve this. And yeah, this is the moment, like where, where where Daisy goes to visit Gatsby in his mansion. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, I'll just read the, this little bit. You know what, Ava began. You should get Mama to help you pick out plants. That's right, Sylvia. Jay turned to face her. I could use your help out there. I doubt that Sylvia said. So that's like I'm just going to pause for a moment because that's I doubt that Sylvia said. You just hear her voice in there. It's a really nice moment of dialogue. The dialogue in this novel is very good, and you can just hear that. You hear those decades of experience that Johnny's been reflecting on that that Don has that she doesn't about the the good music and the lean times. You hear the wisdom of that in what Sylvia's saying there. And it's being dramatized through the, the interactions between the characters. She was embarrassed that they were trying to include her like she was a child. Don't put me in this, Sylvia said. Jay glanced at Ava, a little panic on his face. That's that younger that 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 version of Johnny who or she's reflecting that she'll always be she'll always know more than Don because she's going to outlive him but it's also the naivety that she hasn't yet acknowledged in that passage of reflection that Jay hasn't had that epiphany himself yet good Sylvia thought they should be scared out of their damn minds and there's the like that's the killer like she's she's just sitting there being like you know I've been there I've seen that I've done that myself and I've been scared and you should be scared and I'm not going to sit here and t- try and make it better by saying it's not scared. None of that gets said in this. It's all there, though. That sense of dread and apprehension, the novel doesn't define. Like, yeah. wait, wait, what's so awful? What's going to happen to them? And it's clear. It's, it's, it's an existential thing. There is a gun that shows up in the novel, but boy, not at all like I thought it was going to. No, me neither. And I was kind of glad it didn't show up like I thought it was going to. There's a there's a precursor to the gun in a in a empty bottle as well, right? The, like the the it's interesting the way violence plays out in this novel, which I think is something I, I feel like leaving ambiguous just for those who want to listen to this podcast and then read the book. But page two thirty five, Sylvia's still at it, giving this, still paying off this idea that that Johnny has been the first, a young character has been the first to explicate. This is Sylvia thinking in in relation to something JJ said to her. They made their lives and didn't worry all the time about what else they could have made if the universe got shook out and emptied and reset. How had all the 40-year-old fools misunderstood? Are you telling me life's hard? I think I know that by now. (laughs) Said JJ. Said JJ. Do you? Don't listen to me, JJ. I'm just the Negro that sits by the door. What? Pay me no attention. I don't even exist. Sylvia raised her hands above her head, a surrender. I'm going home. And like that that's again that wisdom of of like, sure, you're gonna be here for decades longer, but I've been here decades longer, and I have something under like lived understanding that you don't have that I'm trying to help lead you to so you don't just repeat 
the the mistakes. Well, but in that passage you just read from is another idea that's really important for the the black women in this novel. This notion of feeling invisible, and I, you know, in in, in part, I, I think. That owes something to Du Bois's life, W.B. Du Bois's life, notion of life behind the veil. But in, in, in part, and I think more particularly, well, no, I'm going to qualify even that. It's also <laughs> a class thing, the way that the poor are sort of invisible to the, to the wealthy. But it's also a gender thing. And I, I think of, say, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, where Clarissa goes through the whole novel feeling invisible. And it's only in the last sentence of the book that she feels seen. The epiphany of Mrs. Dalloway is that somebody sees her. <laughs> yeah. So, so here, there are a dozen places in the novel where one of the women says something to this effect that they feel unseen, they feel invisible, they feel like they don't exist. Becoming invisible was just as strange a process as being visible, Carrie says earlier in the novel. Uh, we could read a lot of passages. Yeah, from Carrie's it. another super interesting, like relatively minor character in this novel, who again, and not to just harp on about this all the time, but again, the, the free indirect discourse gives her a certain power over her own narrative that, that is necessary to the success of the novel as a whole, I think, and to seeing the dynamics of who she is and who she is in relation to all these other characters. She's the, the mother of Henry's child, Ava's yeah. wife, um, yeah, and which is actually in the novel. Sorry. The one white character, the, the one novel. white character as well. Yeah. And so here's where um, I can pay off the last moment of payoff. I want to, just look at here and it will lead us to the title and then and then we can uh, send everybody out to their bookstore to read no one is coming to save us by stephanie powell watts so this is page 293 and it's sylvia and ava having a like mother daughter Mm -hmm. argument and it's really the dynamics of it are great it works really really well so here's i'm just trying to decide where to start because it feeds into this this invisibility thing you were talking about, and also starts to turn it to show you like how do you how do you become seen is is I suppose a an unstated question in some of what's going on in this passage. I'll start here. I am nothing, Mama. You better stop it. Just stop it. That's how I feel now. Well, stop it. I don't care how you feel. You don't get to feel the way you want to. What's wrong with you? You got a life people would kill for. I don't give a shit. I can't live for you or anybody else. That's not on me. Quit trying to make that about me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sylvia sighed and started down the steps. I'm glad you know everything and see everything. You're so smart, aren't you? So Henry has a child. Well, guess what? You don't want him any damn way, Sylvia yelled. You probably <laughs> never have, and you know good and well that I'm right. If this is going to defeat you, I don't know what to tell you. Fight for your life, Ava. That's what it comes down to. Fight for your life. That's so funny coming from you. They might as well have buried you with Devon, which is a really cruel and cutting remark that that yeah. Ava makes. We haven't even had time to talk about that side of the novel, but Sylvia's response that I'll leave for people to read themselves. But the this speech is really this dynamics of the conversation are interesting. The speech is interesting. Again, it's a character pulling the older character, Sylvia, pulling on this wisdom in a situation where her daughter needs to hear that wisdom 
in order to have the kind of epiphany that Johnny's come to herself through her her lover's relationship with Don and, and contemplating that herself. But isn't that isn't the relationship that Ava has has had maybe will have, and, and so it's coming through a mother daughter relationship. It's playing out differently. But this also comes back to this fight for your fight for your life, fight for your thing that you mentioned earlier, which brings us to no one is coming to save us. And so here, let's talk about the title. I'll, I promise I'll let you speak before, you know, <laughs> uh, um, but I want to just set out a couple of things. No one's coming to save us. So you have to fight to save yourself is one obvious thing, but also it's not no one is coming to save you or me. It's us. And it comes back to that narrator thing that we talked about right at the beginning of the episode of like the us is we, the people, the black people living down the mountain. And so there's an implication there that's never spelled out in the novel. Every time that they come back as a chorus, as I suggested, um, it's never spelled out, but it's always implicit in there of like, we are these people are part of us. These individuals that are being dramatized in this novel are members of us, of our community. And no one is coming to save them and no one is coming to save us. And these are the, um, as you put it earlier, these are the existential understandings that we need to come to in order to fight for lives that are meaningful to us. Whether they're meaningful to somebody else is somebody else's problem that are meaningful to us. Now, that's a nice setup. I mean, there are, there are a couple big things we haven't talked about yet. And one of them is the, the recurring meta-dimensionality of this book, ways in, in, in which the act of reading, the act of writing, the act of storytelling, these, these three different acts are all self-consciously conducted in the book. And it, it seems to me that in Stephanie Powell Watt's vision, storytelling is one of the ways that we fight for our life. It's, it's part of the struggle. Life is a struggle in, in, this, in this vision, and love is a struggle. It's not a respite from struggle the way that Ava and, and JJ pretend in their, their little interlude, right? Their little Gatsbyan interlude in his, his fancy new house. Reality comes knocking at the door, literally, with a gun. <laughs> Boy, does that turn into a comic scene. I think another one of the things that I especially love about this book is that it's not a tragic novel. No, far from it. Whereas Fitzgerald's novel obviously is. So this novel sees the same condition. And it's basically, well, life goes on. Life yeah, is it's, li- it's, 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 it's life affirming in that sense, right? Like it's... It is. It is. And, you know, we, we also haven't talked about one of the formal innovations of the novel. And I'm not quite sure, Doug, how I feel about it. And that is the chat room chapters. Oh, yeah. So Ava, she's been struggling for years to conceive a child. And so she joins a kind of uh, support group, Mommies to Be, I think it's called. Something like that, yeah. And finally, toward the end of the novel, she just gives up on that. And about the last thing she writes to the the chat room is, she is never coming. And it's hard not to read that phrase to save us. The she in this case would be the child. The child, yeah. Ava was hoping to conceive. So what does she do then? We were talking earlier, if you can't get what you want, want something else. So Ava adopts children. And this happens in the, the the sort of speeded up, 
action in the denouement. We learn that she's adopted children, and she didn't go to live with JJ, but she's also not living with her husband. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so neither, neither. well, we know Henry couldn't save us. The child that she can't conceive is not coming to save us, as you've just nicely uh, yeah. uh, explicated. JJ didn't come to save her. JJ came to save himself, whether that's successful or not. Again, we've we've talked about the last chapter a little bit there. So she's gone out and found a way to save herself. Yeah, or she didn't find it. Yeah. She may not have been able to conceive a child, but but she conceived a narrative for herself. Yeah, yeah. So just to hang, to hang on this meta business for just a moment longer, on page 216, we get this comment from our narrator. Ava was starting to believe that books were ruining her for real life. Life was duller and less interesting than what she read. But of course, we're reading this in Stephanie Powell Watts's novel. This storytelling, and again, we're, we're agreed, right, that, that Sylvia is the, is the narrator, even though we have these eruptions into this kind of communal or, as you said earlier, choral voice. Yeah. Well, yeah. She, well, I don't know. She's the narrator. She's the more. She's the dominant perspective. Is how I. So no, we're not in agreement. <laughs> okay. uh, no, but no, she's the dominant. She's the dominant point of view, without question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I buy that she's the narrator. I hear you. I'm probably you know. But I think we can live with this. I'm, I'm, I'm probably wanting too much for Sylvia to be Nick. Yeah. Which I, I think she is. But if she's Nick, stripped of the monopoly of narration. Mm-hmm. That makes her a very different kind of presence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a, an accomplished first novel. It is a first novel. I believe Stephanie Powell Watts has published a collection of stories before. Yeah. As far as I know, this is her first novel. Yeah, it is. I haven't read her short stories, but you can kind of tell just reading this novel that she's obviously a really good short story writer because there's there's certain like set-piece scenes even in the novel that just are just really well plotted written the things that they do the things that they reveal work really nicely and also just she's also just uh her prose style is fantastic yeah it's very eloquent without being overly ornate it's it's like it's hard-nosed and beautiful all at once which is a hard thing to a hard way to write and write consistently but she really pulls it off when we both started reading this novel a while back you i think you sent me a message saying it's like it's like a mix of hemingway and and tony morrison which <laughs> which seems kind of right to me it's got there's a there's it's got that kind of pre- precision of of hemingway yeah. and hemingway's eye for things and an insight into things without having to just place them on the page but it's also got that that haunting quality that you see. Yeah, in the, a kind of the, the lyricism that makes a lot of Toni Morrison's writing so great. That that really is about... I'm trying to write, find a way to say this accurately because it's, it's quite hard to describe. that it's Because it's not about like, oh, the words don't mean anything, but it's about that the sound and rhythms of the written language and what the, what the, the kind of musicality of her prose that Toni Morrison has that... I think is reflected here. Interestingly enough, I, I was thinking about Toni Morrison when I was reading this passage from the page three, um, you know, an hour ago, mm-hmm. 
We the black people in town in dog trots and shotgun houses at the bottom of the mountain, houses stuck in the sides of the hills scattered like chicken feed, weren't the ugly children. This is, whether intentional or not, is is irrelevant. It's a, a kind of almost direct uh marker of the bluest eye where which starts talking about how the breed loves were this ugly family and how how they were tainted and marked by their ugliness and damned by their own sense of their own ugliness and the reason that this stands out to me here is that immediately at the beginning of the novel stephanie powell watts is is saying these people who might be viewed that way in their first person plural voice are taking hold of like hold on don't you don't you dare, outsider, say that we we are the ugly people. We're not. Yeah. We know we're not the ugly people. So disabuse yeah. yourself of that. And now we're moving into like that affirmation that you were talking about is right there, right at the beginning, right when our chorus first arrives. And I think that's a testament to what's just just the intelligence of this novel and the and the beauty of this novel as well, I think. Yeah, those two things. And you know, right off the bat, that the novel breaks a bunch of molds. Do you remember that that passage about thirty pages in, um, where the narrator tells us what no one had told Sylvia was that the changes don't end. Hmm. Until very recently, you know, probably ninety percent of all novels ever published were, were some form of building's roman, right? Yeah. So you focus on a young person who's making their way into the world, and then they they meet the right partner, they find a job, and they live happily ever after. So in this novel, we see young people struggling, we see middle aged people in their crises, and we see old people still struggling. Still struggling, yeah. Um, and I, I like that the changes don't end. That's that Nietzschean uh, quality to it that you you alluded to earlier. Yeah. That, you, that the challenge is to face the struggle and embrace the struggle and laugh in the face of the struggle. Yeah. Is, is roughly speaking how Nietzsche puts it. Yeah. So do you remember, we don't see a lot of Devon, the lost... Devon, because he, she's explicit that he he his name rhymes with Levon from the Elton John song. It's a great moment at the beginning of the novel where she's like, it was embarrassing and they never wanted to say it out loud to anybody, but it was Devon to rhyme with Levon from the Elton John song. That's so fantastic. <laughs> um, so he, he basically, I don't know if he's running away from home. It's not entirely clear to me. Yeah. Why? But he he basically just takes off and he walks and he walks and he walks. It's, and he's just a, a child at this point. Mm-hmm. And he, he's um, saved by this helpful stranger named Jimmy. Yeah, who also gets a line of free and direct discourse. Even Jimmy gets his, his own thought, which is one of the things that I thought where it was like pushed a bit too far. But anyway, yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. Well, again, you know, the the, the mastery of, of this, this line. But he he says to Devon, you know, after he's he's failed to to, to learn why why Devon is where he is without money mm-hmm. and without food, he says, whatever it is, Devon, you have to let it go. Keep on trying to get a job. Get a girl, that'll take your mind off things. <laughs> Work is the main thing. That's the Nietzschean thing, Doug. Mm-hmm. Work is the main thing. We're defined by our, our struggles. We need a sense of purpose. And the characters in Stephanie Powell Watts's novel, to me, seem most lost when they're most without purpose. That might be a really perfect note to end our um, <laughs> talk on. That 
scene between Jimmy and Devon in the rest stop or diner, uh, highway diner is just a really touching scene, really careful. It's got a, it's got the kind of fragility of, of a moment between strangers and it. There's a lot of peril, like individual peril involved in it for both characters, I think, and kind of speaks as in almost like a microcosm to what's so, so wonderful about this novel. Michael, thank you so much for joining me to talk about No One Is Coming to Save Us by Stephanie Powell Watts. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to you again about a very, very different reinterpretation of Great Gatsby next time. But we'll leave that as a surprise for for listeners who might want to tune in next month and, and hear what else we have to say about Gatsby, taking it in a completely different direction to this one. Thanks very much. <laughs> thank you. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.